again, most of them are free. The one I use, Olive Tree, is free, but you have to pay for the Bibles. It comes with like King James and maybe ASV or something for free. But they're tremendous resources. Uh, in Bible study. And so I was going to say a while ago, if you're a real heavy-duty user, you can buy them with Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff as well. So, Bible Gateway. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I've, yeah, I've probably have eight or nine translations on Olive Tree that I use. And, and the nice thing is you, it makes it really easy if, if you're suspicious of how a translation reads, you can go back and forth very quickly and see, you know, how is that. So we talked about Gideon last week. We're going to pick up with him again just at the very end of his life. And a lot of Judges is about this kind of transition that we're going to get into next class in here will be first and second Samuel is as Israel translate transitions from a bunch of tribes to sort of a, a proto nation I guess you'd call it where they're they're a, a confederation of tribes to finally we get to the point where it becomes a kingdom and they have a king over them so we're looking at that transition and already at the end of Gideon's rule the people, everybody around them has a king. They say, rule over us, and your son and your grandson also. In other words, we want a dynastic kingdom, succession based on heredity. For you have delivered us out of the hands of Midian. Midian says, I will not, Gideon says, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. Jehovah will rule over you. In other words, our sovereign is God. We don't need another sovereign. Kind of expressing this notion. So that's how Gideon dies. He has Where a bunch. What? Where did you get Jehovah? Uh, the fact that that Lord is in all caps. So that's not Adonai, that's Yahweh. Yeah, it's Yahweh. Anytime, and I've tried to go through, I can't tell you how many times I've copied, pasted, gone in and formatted this as small caps. I've done that <laughs> probably a couple of hundred times in preparing these slides. But anytime you see. Lord in, in, all, in small caps, it's always Yahweh or Jehovah, the covenant name for God. And you'll see it again. So now, Gideon makes his promise, then here comes Abimelech. Abimelech's one of his sons, and apparently one of a lot of sons. So he goes over to Shechem, which is where his mother comes from, and, and kind of gets the whole, knows the whole clan of his mother's family and says, okay, which is better that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam, Jerob, that's Gideon's other name, rule over you or that one rule over you? And he says, also remember, I'm one of you. My mom is from Shechem here. He's not talking to everybody, all the Israelites. He's talking to this specific group in Shechem. He says, I'm one, one of you. So they hear this. They say, he's our brother. So, he goes to father, and I left out a little bit here, he kills the brothers, his brothers, all these 70 of them, on one stone, apparently the idea is in one place, he kills them all, except one guy gets away, Jotham, the, the baby of the family, survives, and he, he goes into hiding. So then the people from Shechem get together, and they make Abimelech king. So he takes over, despite Gideon's promise, he becomes king. He kills all these brothers but one. Uh, Jotham responds, we really don't have time this morning to talk about this parable of the trees. It's really a nice little piece of poetry. I encourage you to look at it in, outside of class. But it, it's a very nice uh, example of Hebrew poetry. 
but it kind of says all these trees wanted, you know, the trees didn't want to rule and then kind of finally the bramble bush ends up ruling. So uh, Jotham addresses the nation, he says, or, you know, he said, if you acted in good faith and honor when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done for him as his actions deserve, in other words, if you've done the right thing for my, you know, my father fought for your risky's life, you know, he says, that's one thing. But if you've risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech the son of the slave woman, in other words, she's not a wife's son, she's a, she's a concubine, a servant's son, said, you know, have you made him son because he's your kinsman? If I say you've acted in faith, uh, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out, of, out from Abimelech and devour the lords of Shechem, uh, fire from the lords of Shechem and devour Abimelech. So, in, so he gives this great pronouncement you know, if, you've done, if, 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 if what you've done is really right, that's great. But if not, you know, I hope you're both all condemned. But then he, and he, he's bold in his speech, but then he runs away and hides. <laughs> so he stays there because he's afraid. He's, he's brave, but he's not stupid, I guess. He realizes this person's already killed 70 of his brothers. And he's certainly gonna, not going to hesitate to kill him. But he does make this statement. We have the statement recorded. And again, I said, we're not going to talk much about Abimelech. Uh, what happens next is enmity breaks about between him and the men of Shechem. And so a war starts. We have kind of three battle scenes in the, in the description of the war. And the final one, uh, there's an assault on this city of Thebes. Uh, they go and they take it, but there's a, a tower there in the city, and they're fighting to take that tower. The people have you know, the, gone into the tower and climbed up there. That's the last place that's safe. And so they, get, they start fighting it, and they come close to the entrance of the tower. They're going to set it on fire. But a woman, whose name we don't know, takes an upper millstone and throws it out the... <laughs> yeah. We're actually going to look at a picture of kind of a millstone a little, little bit. It's, it's a Roman one. It's not a, this old, but a gay idea. Throws it out, crushed his skull. Uh, apparently he's still, you know, hadn't died yet. So he has his uh, sword carrier, his aide de camp here, carrying his armor. And so his statement to this young man is, take out a sword and kill me. He said, I don't want to be, to be said that I was killed by a woman. So he, the young man takes a sword and runs him through. And so that's the end of Abimelech. And just say, if you read the story, you'll, I think, agree with me, good riddance. He's a lousy person. Treacherous man. Uh, so anyway, he's gone. So, and, and it's interesting, we have several of the judges that are talked about in detail, and some, this, for instance, this is uh, Tola and Jair. This is all we know, this is all that's recorded. Lived in Shamir, the hill country of Ephraim, rose, he judged 23 years, he died and was buried at Shamir. Then after him came Jair the Gileadite, 22 years, he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they had 30 towns, which are in the land of Gilead, called Havoth Jair to this day. Jair died and buried in Canaan. So we have these little interludes of these minor judges that we really don't know much about. Uh, so, you know, the land apparently did well under their rule. We don't have any instance or any examples of regression to idolatry under their... Have you heard much about uh, overlap? 
judges to Samuel? Uh, I mean, like as far as chronologically? Uh, I'd have to. Th- because I have a, I have a great, uh, well, I think it's great, uh, devotional that I do about Eliezer, the son of Dodo the Ahoahite, mm-hmm. from 1 Samuel 13. And the kids love it when I say son of Dodo. And so they listen to it. And I okay. wonder if that's the same Dodo. Uh, I'm trying to. I'm trying to. I'm trying. I'm trying. Okay, okay. We've got at least forty-five years here, and then when we add on uh, Samson, it's what twenty years. So it's getting a little old for it to be the same one, I'd think. And Jephthah will see. I think in a minute how long he reigned. But anyway, these guys reign, and again, I'll I'll try to do the math by next week. But I think it's a little long. George. Yes. Clarify for me real quickly. What, what would be? I'm still struggling with what a judge really did during this time. What's I, the difference in a judge and a king over these people? Well, it's, that's that's a real good question because when you look functionally, a lot of these judges are acting as a king. They're 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 military leaders. They're they're pretty much ruling the country now. But they don't bear the, and it may be just a titular thing. They don't bear the title. That may be the only thing. I think there's just a, at least there was a tacit yeah. that God was still right. Yeah. During that period. Yeah, and, <coughs> and, and, and and when we see like in Samuel, yeah, yeah, Bimlex obviously. But but you know, you look at Gideon. He, he's these these men are all acknowledge God as the king, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think it's. You know, just from my reading, I guess I'd say it's more a, a title thing than it is a functional. I think these guys are functioning. They're, they're making decisions. They're leading the nation. They're raising armies, whatever. Now, what about communication? What's the, you know, uh, revelation? I, you know, we do see examples here where, where there is... You know these these people do receive revelation <clears throat> directly from God. Uh, you know Samuel, trying to think how much the kings a lot of times receive that through prophets. And again, Samuel functioned as I uh, I, I don't know what you guys are going to say, but I think Samuel to me is effectively the last judge of Israel. He he functions in that role. He's the one who anoints the king. He's a prophet, but he's to me Samuel's also a judge. They're also a source of resolution of disputes. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah we see Deborah sitting under the palm tree of Deborah and people... Can see, you imagine? I mean, you've got coming out of, of uh, bondage, two million people traveling across the desert. You know, your sheep are in my pasture. Yeah. Your kids did this to my kids. All kinds yeah. of uh, disputes with that many people together. And then yeah. they're over here, I'm sure. Yeah. Plains and land. Yeah. And, 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 and Moses started all of that. Yeah. He, he initiated the judge. Yeah, and a lot of that was probably handled on on a tribal level, and then I suspect only uh, you know kind of you know like states and federal you know that didn't get to Deborah unless it was pretty significant. Yes. And I guess just looking at it, when God's raising people up, and it's not a dynastic thing, uh, which would seem to be one. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. Sort of, uh, yeah. Yeah. The judges don't. You know, the, 
again, you don't see things like standing armies. You don't see uh, a lot of the trappings that you mentioned, the, the palaces and things that you see with the king. So that's a good point. But they do function, you know, they do a lot of things that are, that are they do the judicial function as well. And, and Jephthah now is, uh, most of us know the story, is a tragic judge, great tragedy. But, but starting off, it's interesting, we don't look at this part of the story a lot. He's born, he's the son of a prostitute, he's the son of Gilead. And Gilead is his father, and what happens, though, uh, we, don't, we don't know, but it's, it's, it's a lot easy for me to kind of go back and look at the Abraham story and see some similarities. We have, we, we aren't told that Gillian's wife was, was barren, but we, you know, anyway, we have this Jephthah, Gillian's wife now bears him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah away. So, in other words, the, the sons of the legitimate wife, you know, send this son of, this half-brother, the son of the prostitute, away. In other words, they say, you shall not, not only the driving away, say you shall not inherit anything in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Okay, so Jephthah leaves his brothers and goes to this land of Tob. And, and what does he do? Kind of gets in the outlaw business. Outlaw, you know, I love the outlaws collected around Jephthah and went raiding with him. Remind us of anybody in uh, Samuel? about David and these mighty men. You know, uh, we, we tend to, I think, sugarcoat David sometimes because he's such a great character. But if you read about the start of David and these mighty men, they're not called outlaws, but that's kind of what they were. They went raiding. So anyway, here's this guy, the son of a prostitute, half-brother, he goes off. He's up to no good. But apparently he's, he's making uh, a reputation. Because the, the Ammonites decide they're going to wage war against Israel. And the elders of Gilead all now think, well, let's, uh, what about old Jephthah? Again, he must have been making a reputation for himself as, as a, a fighter. So they go to him and they say, come be our commander so they may fight with the Amorites. And I love Jephthah. He says, aren't you the very ones who rejected me and drove me out of my father's house? You know, kind of... Uh, give him credit. You know, here, here are the guy. Here are the guys who sent him off. Says, so now, why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? They say, nevertheless, we have not turned back to you, so that you may go with us and fight the Amorites and become head over. So they say, if you come back, we'll make you. We'll make you the boss. You know, we've now turned back. You know, go with us and become head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. So they say they kind of come back begging. They say, if, if you'll come back, if you'll be victorious, we'll, we'll give you now prominence over all those people who left you. Okay, and it's interesting, in this conversation, notice the elders never mention God. But look, look at the son of the prostitute. He says, if you bring me back home and fight with the Amorites, and the Lord, Jehovah, gives them over to me, I will be your head. So he immediately, you know, despite being the bad boy, uh, the, he says, if, if, if God, he recognizes God's role. And then the elders say, 
Jehovah will be witness between us. We will surely do as you say. George, it, it's, I'm looking at a, I forget which version this is now, but he raises that as a question. Will I be your head? Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what NIV says. This is NIV, I think. Uh, okay. Yeah, this is the NRSV. So that's a good point. So he's, he's, he's in any event, he's, he's doubling down to make yeah. sure. He's, yeah. he's saying, okay, make sure I understand this right. So, will I be your head? And they say, it's a deal. So now, what does he do? Is he, you, know, the, he, you know, the first thing you think of, he's going to raise an army and go out to war, but uh, he's a little more savvy than that. <coughs> he sends a messenger to the king of the Amorites. He says, what is it between you and me that we're going to fight? come to me to fight against my land? He said, why, why are we doing this? What, what's the big deal? So the Ammonites, and watch me here. Uh, we're talking about the Am Ammonites, and we're going to be talking about the Amorites, two different people, okay? And, and, I'm, and I will say it wrong, I guarantee you. So the Ammonites send the messengers, said, because Israel on coming from Egypt took away the land from the Arnon to Jabbok and the, to the Jordan, they're not forward now, restore it peaceably. He said, you know, Israel took this land when they're coming from Egypt, and now we want it back. And Jotham, or Jephthah, is going to say, no, you don't want it back. You never had it. Now, here's where it, this is the Amorites now. He said, Israel, this is, this is describing what happened on the Exodus. He said, we sent messengers to King Shion of the Amorites, king of Heshbon, and Israel said, let us pass through your land to our country. And he said, we just want to go through. But Shion didn't trust Israel, so Shion gathered his people that camped at Jahaz, fought with Israel, Jehovah God of Israel gave Shion and all his people into the hand of Israel. And they defeated him, so Israel occupied the land of the Amorites who inhabited that country. They occupied all the territory of the Amorites. So he says, you know, this wasn't your land. This was Amorite land, not Ammonite land. So he said, you know, th you never had this land. So he goes on and says, now Jehovah the God of Israel has conquered the Am Amorites for the benefit of the people of Israel. Do you intend to take their place? Should you not possess what your God, Hemosh, gives you to possess? So, you know, our God gave us this land. You, you know, if your God gives you some land, you can take that. But this was never your land to start with, and we're, and we're not giving it up. You know, your God will give you whatever land He gives you, you can have, but this is the land given to us by Yahweh. So everything, uh, it is not I who have sinned against you, but you're the ones who, who do, you're the one who does me wrong by making war on me. Let Jehovah, who's judge, decide today for the Israelites and the Ammonites. So he says, you know, we'll let, we'll let God settle this. But this was never your land. You don't have a valid claim. And if you want to go to war, we'll go to war. So he attempts to, to get out of the war, but he eventually says he's going to. And here's the part of the story, Jep, that we always come back to and always remember, the tragedy. He made a vow to Jehovah said, excuse me, if you give the Ammonites in my hand, into my hand, then whoever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return victorious from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's to be offered up by me as a burnt offering. This, for, for what to us, and I don't know how it seems, it seems to me a rash vow. You know, was he hoping the dog would come out? I don't know. But anyway, so the, he wins the battle. He comes back to his home 
And here it is. And there was his daughter coming out to meet him with timbrels and with dancing. This is a typical response to welcome a victorious uh, soldier back. And not only do he see it's his daughter, it's his only child. He had no son or daughter except her. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the great cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord and I cannot take back my vow. And we talked about this earlier, I mean, way back in Joshua, we talked about the Gibeonites. The, the power of the oath in the Old Testament is it's not something that's taken lightly. You know, we talked about how the, you know, remember the Gibeonites came and said, oh, we've come all this long way, we're not from here. And, and Joshua says, we won't destroy you. They lied, they, they deceived Joshua, but he made, he made an oath and he, he's not willing to go back on that oath so the Gibeonites get spared. Here's an here's a example where Jephthah's made that oath. Uh, and again, you know, Israel is not a, a nation that practiced child sacrifice. Some of the Canaanite, a lot of the Canaanite nations did. But Jephthah, he said, I've opened my mouth to the Lord. I cannot take my, back my vow. And so then we see his daughter's response, which uh, I call it an amazing daughter. But you see her devotion as well. It says, my father, if you've opened your mouth to Jehovah, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that, now that Jehovah has given you vengeance against your enemies, the Amorites. And she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Grant me two months that I may go and wander in the mountains to bewail my virginity, my companions and I. So she, uh, obedient, you know, you see again, I think these Old Testament ideas of obedience to God, obedience to parents. She said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go, just give me this, two months to, to prepare. So there's a real key here, back in verse 29, it says the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. And this is before he made this. Uh-huh. And, and this is one of the things I think that we struggle to understand. The gift of the Spirit does not guarantee right behavior. Yeah. It gives the opportunity yeah. to behavior. Yeah. But you have to, you have to wrestle with it. Here, yeah. all he had to do was avail himself of the gift that God had given him. That yeah. is, uh, appeal to the Spirit to make the right decision of how to approach this battle. Yeah. He didn't have to make this vow. He didn't have to. No. It's all, it's all yeah. a weakness of his character. Yeah. Right. Do you believe that in the uh, two million number of Israel, well, there were 603,550 men aged 20 and above. Mm -hmm. Children and women. Okay. So yeah, yeah, you could reasonably say it's yeah. a couple of million. Yeah. I was just reading, you know, Rabbi Michael yeah. Samuel, his question, they said if that many people left Egypt, they could have never crossed. Well, yeah. Okay. It would have stretched 350. Okay, yeah. Okay, well, here, here, here's the question, okay? Let me, let me rephrase the question. Okay. What do numbers mean in the Old Testament? Are... are you know, how did, how did the writers view numbers, uh, the numbers? Are they intended to give an exact number? Or oftentimes, are they symbolic? Whenever, you know, go back, 70 sons, that's a lot of sons. But 70, 70 pops up again and again. 40 pops up again and again in the Old Testament. And again, it, it bothers us as Westerners in the 20th century because 
we see uh, first well we see history primarily that its goal should be accuracy and a faithful representation of what happened that's that's the way we view history is it ever that probably not <laughs> history always has a point of view uh, and I'll just tell you my personal belief and and you can kick me out or do whatever you want to <laughs> I think a lot of times in the, the writers of the Old Testament were more concerned with teaching lessons and, and with, than they were with ag absolute accuracy on things like numbers. So there may, there may be numbers that are overstated or understated, but very again, you see a lot of numbers that show up again and again and again. And, and they, they, they may actually, they may be right, I'm good with that, but, but I'm also comfortable with the idea that the writers adjust the numbers. And, and you know, and I'll just say, if, if you're really into all that accuracy, start adding them up, try to compare generations, and you'll see they almost never match up. <laughs> you know, you say, you know, despite what Bishop Usher did to say, you know, he added all these genealogies up and said we started in 4004 BC, but if you, if you add them up and you use a different way of adding them up, you get different different numbers. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, matter of fact, the judges are a good example. Go through the judges, add up the tenures of all the judges, and then go back to you know where it's 400 years or however many years I've forgotten from the building of the temple to the Exodus, and that puts the Exodus in 1446. But then if you add the judges up, you don't get the same number. So anyway, numbers are tough in the Old Testament. And, and again, as, as we talked about with Joshua, you know, there, there are examples of people that in Joshua are, were told they're totally wiped out and utterly destroyed, and they show up in Judges again. Here they are. And the, the proposal I gave you is, is that the writer, writers used hyperbole. They had a decisive military victory, but their way of saying that was we killed them just like a high school football coach says, go out there and kill them. He's not, he's not advocating mass murder of teenagers. <laughs> he's saying be victorious, be tough, win the battle, win, win the game. So I, I, I believe that the writer of Joshua especially used that same kind of hyperbole. Okay. But again, numbers in the Old Testament are tough. And, and, and uh, most, again, the idea of, of that many Jews fleeing Egypt, it's hard to imagine they didn't leave any trace because they didn't. Uh, anyway, so here's the daughter, and then we have one more thing. Uh, Jephthah grants her request. She goes away for two months with her companions. She returns to her father, and then he carried out his vow. Uh, she died a virgin. And this is, we talked about one of the ideas of history in the Old Testament, what's called etiology, which explains something that's there now. And this is an example of etiology. There arose an Israelite custom for four days every year the daughters of Israel go out and lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Probably when this was written, that was still practiced. And so here's an etiology to say that's, how, that's why we do that. So that's, that kind of closes out Jephthah. We'll come back at the end and kind of summarize. Uh, any sense of Judaism still practiced? I, could, I, looked, I couldn't find any. I, they're, they're, uh, now, there's, I'm going to put it this way. I didn't look real hard, but there's... The evidence is that it, it was not a if it's come up about again, it's a new practice. It's not something that's continually practiced through Judaism. So anyway, there's Jephthah, uh, and uh, here's Ephraim is mad again. You know they're mad again before, 
about not being called to the fight. And uh, at that time, uh, Gideon said, well, you can catch the guys who are running away. You know, they're coming your way, catch them. And there's a certain kind of irony here because they complained to Jephthah they weren't asked to fight. So that now Jephthah can't settle them down, so they have a war. Ephraim loses and runs away. So instead of being the people catching the people who are fleeing, now they're, they're the fleers. I don't know if that's the right word. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Are they on the east? Huh? Are they on the east of the river? Uh, no, these are all on the west, I think. Oh, I, it's Manasseh. No, you're right. Ephraim's a, I, I, I'd have to look at the map. I, but anyway, this is, if, if you're a word person, I, I, I told you I work crossword. I work the New York Times crossword every day. So this is a great word, shibboleth. It's an English word that we use, but here's where it comes from. So the Gilead, you know, these, these folks are leaving. They're going to take the, so they go to the fords of the Jordan, the places when they came. So when somebody comes up, they said, and says, I need to get across the river. They'd say, are you an Ephraimite? Who's going to say yes? No way. So everybody says no. They say, oh, you're not an Ephraimite. Then say shibboleth. And the, if you're an Ephraimite, apparently you've had trouble pronouncing that sound, and they would say Sibboleth. And when they did that, they'd kill him. <laughs> so, so they seized him, killed all the, you know, and I think something like 42,000 were seized and killed anyway. And now if you, uh, and there's the English definition of the word we use today for Sibboleth. It's a catchword or a slogan or some truism or usage that's distinct to a particular group. So... And probably there are people who, who use this word and never know where it comes from, but that's where it comes from. So here we come to another set of minor judges. Ibzan, seven years, we're told he had 30 daughters and 30 sons, and they brought in 30 wives for the 30 sons. Again, these kind of round, even numbers. Elon rules for 10 years, and then Abdon rules for eight years had 40 sons and 30 grandsons, and we're told they had 70 donkeys. <laughs> hey, I, I'm just telling you what, it, everybody had a donkey. And, and maybe if, if you're a, a, a person reading that in that time, it, there was a message there that everybody had a donkey. I, you know, maybe that like everybody had a car, I don't know, but we're to, that's what we're told. Yeah, it's like a two-car family. Yeah, <laughs> everybody got a Yeah. So anyway, so then we come to our, our guy. Everybody knows Samson, uh, great judge of Israel. We're going to go pretty quick here. He's born to Manoah. Uh, uh, his wife was barren, and, and God uh, make, tells the wife she's going to have a son, but she's told he needs to be a Nazarite. Uh, you know, no razors to come on his head. Uh, deliver us from the Philistines. Uh, Nazarites, if you go back to Numbers 6, their Nazarites are described. Main thing, no wine or strong drink, told not even to eat uh, grape, uh, grape juice, uh, seeds or skins they can't even eat. So then the other thing, no razors are coming up on his head. Yeah, so that's how they're holy. Number three, I'm not sure Samson did too well. Uh, they separate themselves to the Lord. They shall got, not go near a corpse. Even their father and mother, brother, sister should die and not defile themselves because the consecration is on their head. Uh, Samson didn't do, he, I don't know, he, he created a lot of corpses. <laughs> so I'm assuming he had, especially if you do it with the jawbone of a donkey, you have to be pretty close. Uh, 
so anyway pretty good uh, pretty we know it did well on this hopefully it did this not too well on that anyway so here's our guy samson you know samson is a great character he's this earthy character that's that's you know driven by his desires i see it i want it at least that that's my view he comes to timnah saw a philistine woman this this is the first time we really see a lot about the philistines in these books told his father and mother said i saw a philistine woman now get her for me as my wife uh father and mother said you need to find a nice jewish girl you know <laughs> this chick's uh, you know don't mess with her find it find a nice jewish girl you know, you must go, you know, our own kin, our own people. Samson said, get her for me because she pleases me. Again, this. So his father didn't, uh, didn't know this was from God. He was seeing pre pretense to act against the Philistines. So their God is acting in this, but they don't realize it. So, so he goes down to Timnah. They came to the vineyards, and uh, he, he was going down. Uh, apparently he's away from his parents this time. A young lion comes out. Samson kills the lion. Uh, he goes down. Uh, they talk to the woman. She pleases Samson. Uh, and then he comes back to Mary, and he sees that lion carcass and a swarm of bees is inside, and there's honey. So he eats some of the honey. He doesn't tell anybody about it, though. So they may have known he killed the lion. They didn't know about the honey. So he goes down, and uh, they're having the wedding feast, celebrating seven days. Uh, Jewish weddings, always a lot of fun. More fun then, apparently, for seven days. So he says, let me give you a riddle. You know, they're sitting around. He said, if you've guessed my riddle, I'm going to give you 30 linen garments and festal garments. If you can't explain it, then you give me 30. So they said, go ahead, give us your riddle. And uh, I don't know how it is in Hebrew, but it rhymes in English. That's great. He says, out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. So he thinks about that lion he killed. So... So that was maybe day one. By the fourth day, the, these guys come and they say, you know, get, get Samson to explain the riddle or we'll burn you and your father's house with fire. This is a serious riddle. Uh, says you, and, you know, it, and they, they appeal to hospitality. He said, have you invited, invited us here to impoverish us? So his, his wife goes, said, oh, you hate me. You do not really love me. Oh, boy. That's a, she's, a, she, she's, a, she's a good one. Since you've asked a riddle of my people, you've not explained it. He said to her, look, I have not told my father and mother. Why should I tell you? So this is day four. She continues for three days. <laughs> and, la and because he na she nagged him on the seventh day, he told her, what does he think she's going to do? <laughs> does he think she just wants to know this? Well, no, she's told him. She said, you know, uh, you know, I need to know. So the men of the town... Saw him on the seventh day before sunset. Apparently that was the time. And then they say, what, what is sweeter than honey and what is stronger than a lion? Well, Samson is not pleased. He said, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. There's almost a, an insinuation there of sexual infidelity, which, you know, we aren't given details, but, but one wonders. So Samson's pretty ticked off and talked about the Spirit of the Lord. Uh, I don't want to get into the concept of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, but I'll just say there's no Jew who believes in the Holy Spirit, okay? But, so this can be interpreted as the Holy Spirit or just 
the, the Spirit of God. Uh, and he went down to Ashkelon. <laughs> you know, he said, I'll get, the, I'll get the 30 garments. He killed 30 men, takes their spoil, and gave the garments to the men who had explained the riddles. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given his companion who had been his best man. Not a happy wedding, you know. <laughs> We've all, we've all been to weddings that didn't go well, but I think we can put this one down as, you know, not a really, started out okay, but you know, when a guy kills 30 men and then throws their garments in there, you can imagine they're bloody probably. Says, here's your clothes. <laughs> so, in, and in the end, they give his wife to the best man. He stomps off mad. So again, incredible. So, but now it says about wheat harvest time, and Samson says, eh, that gal, she was really good looking. I really, you know, might have to go down and uh, spend a little time with her. And I mean, he, he goes down, he, he brings a kid, brings a goat, okay, that's nice. He says, I want to go into my wife's room. Well, I think we all know what, that, what he's looking for. His father would not let, let him to go in, or he said, I was sure you had rejected her. I gave her to your companion, best man. And he says, isn't her younger sister prettier? You know, here's, some, you know, here's, here's a gal. Take her instead. You know, he's good Philistine. He's accommodating. <laughs> and said, so he says, this time when I do mischief to the Philistines, I will be without blame. He says, you, you're, you've asked for it. You're going to get it. And all of us, I think, know the story of what happens next. He catches what? It's, yeah, it's wheat harvest time. All that, all those, all that wheat's drying out in the fields, turned turn brown, getting ready to be cut. So he, takes, he finds 300 foxes, gets torches, turned the foxes tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. Set fire to the torches and he lets them loose. Here are all those wheat fields all dried out. So they go, burned up the shocks, the standing grain, and not only that, they get into the vineyards and olive groves. You know, olive groves are usually hundreds of years old. So the Philistines are mad. Uh, they find out who did it. It says, because he has taken Samson's wife and given her his companions. So the Philistines take revenge, but not on Samson. They came up and burned the, the gal and her dad. And Samson says, if this is what you do, I swear I will not stop until I've taken revenge on you. Struck them down hip and thigh with a great slaughter, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. So he's taken revenge. Uh, they know who did it. He's not only burned the fields, he killed some people. So now the, you can imagine the Philistines are mad. So they come to, the, the, to Judah, the tribe of Judah, and uh, Judah says, you know, what, what's this all about? They said, well, we're going to take, we're going to take Samson and do, do to him what he did to us. So Judah sent 3,000 men down to the Rock of Edom, and they said, you know, the Philistines, they're, they're rulers over us. And this is kind of the first instance I get of how strong it is. I mean, the Philistines, they're running the country now. You know, it's been a, that last judge has died, now the Philistines taken over. He says, what have you done to us? He says, as they did to me, so have I have done to them. They said, we're going we're gonna to bind you so that we give you the hands of the Philistines. So 3,000 men, they're probably going to be successful. So Samson goes on. He says, okay. Uh, he says, swear to me you'll not attack me. He says, don't kill me. Just bind me up. Just tie me up. 
So they bound him with two new ropes. So here they lead him, and you know, there's a party of Philistines. Looks good. The Jew, people of Judah have done what, what they're asked to do. And he says, the Lord, the, again, the Spirit of the Lord rushed on him, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that had caught fire. His bonds melted off his hands. He then found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, reached down and took it, and with it he killed a thousand men. So he takes his revenge. So that we don't know. Uh, he's, he's thirsty. Uh, you know, and, and, and here we see this very, again, this very visceral man. Oh, we're running out of time. Uh, tell you what, let's do this and we'll pick up with Delilah next week. Uh, he, he's, he, immediately he starts griping. He says, I'm going to die of thirst now. And they fall to their hands. So uh, God opens the hollow place where he was hiding. Water came from it. He drank and the spirit returned revived. And they give it a, a ceremonial name. And it goes on to say, he judged Israel in the days of Philistines 20 years. So even though the Philistines are ruling, Samson's judging. And we'll pick up here next week uh, with Samson and Delilah, finish them out, and then try to do some general observations on the book of Judges and Joshua. And then the week after that, and we'll let also Hilton and Terry will tell us a little bit about their classes coming up. Thank you. Sorry we ran long. <laughs>